The book of Esther is a unique one in that God is actually not mentioned once at all. It's also unique in that it might be the oldest soap opera known to man. See, at face value, it can seem like Esther is the main character and everyone else is playing the supporting cast. But when it comes to reading God's word, things aren't always as they seem. God was clearly at work in this godless kingdom. That's right. Today we're going to look at chapter five. We're going to look at two characters who couldn't be more opposite of one another. We're going to look at Esther that through her bravery made decisions with others in mind. She exemplified a selfless life, a life devoted to seeing others benefit rather than herself. On the alternative path is a character named Haman. Though he, was, he fed his insecurity and made selfish decisions that benefited only himself. Yep. You and I are faced with these decisions daily, uh, and we are posed with questions like, when it comes to our spiritual lives, um, how do we navigate these decisions? Um, is God really involved in the little things in our lives, or is it merely a guessing game? Let's take a look at chapter 5 inside the book of Esther. So this is where we find ourselves today. We've been diving into the book of Esther over the past few weeks, telling the story of Esther, and we've been seeing it unfold somewhat like a chess game as God is aligning these people and putting them into position to accomplish his goal. But if you haven't been tuning in with us, we want to kind of catch you up on what's going on here in the book of Esther. And so there's a few main characters, a few main chess pieces, if you will, that we need to tell you about. The first main characters are Esther, and we're going to call him Uncle Mordecai. And so they're the two main players in the story, but some other people that you've also met by now, if you've been tuning in, is the king of Persia, and then his evil conniving villain, who is Haman. And so he's going to be a major player in our story today as well. But if you've kind of gotten to know this king, you know he throws these big, crazy parties. He's somewhat of a drunken pushover, and he has the Haman come in. He has all these people come in and join him for these parties from all over the land. And at one point, he, he was married to the queen, and he's, he's summoned the queen to come to his party, and she's like, nah, I don't want to come to the party today. And he ends up banishing her from the kingdom. Sounds like a stand-up guy, right? And so he throws this other extravagant party, but this one, it's a beauty pageant because he's trying to find his next queen. And so he brings all of these beautiful women in, and he's trying to pick the best one for him, and he sees Esther. And Esther catches his eye, and he decides that that is who he wants to be his queen. 
You can see these pieces aligning, these chess pieces aligning as God is doing a work through these people without them even being aware of it at the moment. And so he chooses Esther and Esther becomes queen. And then as Esther's queen, also the conniving villain, Haman, he rises into power. And so Haman makes this weird rule that everyone in the kingdom has to bow to him, right? It's obscene, it's absurd, and it really makes Uncle Mordecai pretty mad. And if you'll remember, Esther and Mordecai, they, they kind of communicate through this. And so Mordecai comes to Esther and he's like, there's this decree they put, that they have put out that Haman has said that everyone in the whole kingdom has to bow to him and I don't like it and I don't want to do it. And so Esther says, oh, okay, well, this enrages Haman. It enrages him that, that Mordecai will not bow to him. And so Haman goes to the king and they make this other decree that says they're going to end up killing all of the Jews. But if you remember who a Jew is, that's right, Esther, who's the queen. She was also Jewish. And so now they're at this crossroads. They're at this turning point. They're at this point of the story where Mordecai hears of this, and he gets pretty nervous. This is his people. These are the people that eventually the lineage of Jesus will come from. And this king and his evil villain are talking about exterminating the whole group of people. So you could see why they would be worried. And so Mordecai goes to Esther. And he talks to Esther and he says, we have to do something. And maybe you remember this from, from last week, but it was the time where Mordecai looks at Esther and he says, Esther, you're put into this spot. You're in this position. You become queen and maybe it's a time for such a time as this that you've been put in this spot. Maybe it's for such a time as this that your piece, your chess piece has been moved to this place so that you can save our people. And that's where we pick up our story today. It is Esther's turning point moment. So we've all had these turning point moments, right? These moments in our life where we can look back on it and it's a decision, it's a moment that we chose to act, that we chose the right path and we can look back and be like, that was the moment for me. I believe that this is the moment for Esther. We're gonna find ourselves at this moment for Esther and we're also gonna find ourselves a little bit later at this moment for Haman. But first, we're gonna look at Queen Esther. We're gonna look at what we can learn from the moments that followed this very decision that she'd made. We're gonna look at Esther's turning point moment. You see, Esther had been faced with a problem, but she had been put in a position to help solve that problem. And she had to decide what she was going to do. You see, she could take the road of selfishness because her position actually required her to do nothing. She could go and live a very safe, comfortable life as queen, or she could choose the road that led to selflessness, which means that she would stand up for those who couldn't stand up for themselves. She would make a difference right where she was because of the position that she had been given and the place that God had had her. So here's where we're gonna look. We're gonna look at Esther 5 verses one through eight. And I'm gonna read it for you. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner courts of the palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out the, he held out the golden scepter that was in his hand. And then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. 
And the king saw her. What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even if it is half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come to a feast that I have prepared for the king. And the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? And it shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even if it is half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. And then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my wish and to fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. You see, Esther chose the selfless path. She chose the path that was best for others, even if it would be hard for her. And so here's what I know about our world today. It is a world of self-love, of self-care, of self-day or selfies. We're all about us. We're all about our comfort. We're all about providing for our future, which are not bad things. But when they become the focus, when they become the center of our life, it can get us a little bit off kilter. See, I think that scripture calls us to so much more. You can read in John 15, 13, it says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And then in Philippians 2, verse 3, it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. So if scripture is calling us to this place of selflessness and we're looking at the life of Queen Esther and some actions that she took that were incredibly selfless, how can we pull from this? How can we take what we see in Esther's life and apply it to our own life? I think the first thing that we can learn from Queen Esther in this story is that selfless people respond to conviction. You see, selfless means this. It means to be more concerned with the needs of others than the needs of your own. You see, Esther made a plan and that she put the plan into action. She made a selfless decision in a moment, but she lived it out in action steps. She made this plan that she would go to the king and she would request a banquet and then she would request another banquet because she knew that this was the process that she needed to liberate her people. This was the process that would ultimately preserve the line of Jesus. She was making one right decision and then another right decision. She was aligning the chess pieces of this game and she was making the next right move. See, the other thing that we know about Queen Esther, it would have been very easy for her to leave this conversation with her uncle Mordecai and say, that's really terrible. This is really bad. There's, someone should do something. And it could even stir in her heart a little bit. But she could go home to her royal, probably very comfortable couch, and she could sit back and she could do nothing. It would cost her nothing. She could live a very secure, happy life as queen of Persia. But... What if she missed out what God, on what God was going to do? We can make decisions that allow us to be comfortable, but what if we miss out on something worthy, something holy? Maybe we're afraid, maybe we're lazy, or maybe, honestly, we've just become selfish. Maybe we've grown cold to a calling that God has put on our life. It might look a little bit like this. It's really easy to sit on a Sunday morning and feel compelled during a sermon and maybe do something like serve. It, it, it's very easy to say, yeah, I, I want to do that. 
but it takes being selfless to show up the next Sunday morning and to stand in front of a room full of second graders and to teach and lead the next generation and then to do it again the next Sunday and the next Sunday and the next Sunday. And it, it, it might be easy in a moment to say, I, I want to be faithful to my spouse, but it takes you considering your spouse above the needs and wants of your own to block the phone number of the person that you call maybe when you get lonely or that you message on Instagram. It, it, takes, it takes a moment to decide, I want to put away this addiction or I want to lay it down. It's pretty easy to do that in a moment, but it takes being selfless to get rid of the substance. It takes being selfless to consider the people, the relationships that you're hurting along the way, and consider that more important than yourself. It's simple to decide in a moment that gossip's not good for me, it's not good for my friends or my relationship, but then it's selfless to sit in the middle of a group of friends and say, no matter what it costs me, I'm not gonna do that, I'm not gonna talk about people that way. It's simple in a moment to write a Facebook post or something cool that talks about how much you love God and love others, but then at the next family gathering or when you're standing at the coffee bar and someone says an inappropriate joke or maybe it's a racist comment or sexist comment, what is selfless is when you're able to stand up and say, no, that's not how I talk. That's not the kind of conversation that I want to engage in. You see, selfless people respond to conviction. You see, you can sum it up like this. Direction, not intention, determines your destination. You and I both know we can have the best intentions in the world, but if we don't head in the direction of our destination, we will end up somewhere we never meant to go. The second thing that I think that we can learn from Queen Esther in this turning point moment is that selfless people surrender to God's control. Esther surrendered to God in control of her situation and her outcome. Now there's a few things that we know about Queen Esther as she headed into this moment in scripture. We know that she knew exactly what happened to that last queen. We know that she knew that the punishment for approaching the king and not being accepted was banishment and maybe even death. We know that she prepared a banquet before she even entered the king's quarters, which if you ask me requires a ton of faith anyway. We know that Esther had a lot of faith, but how? Where did it come from? See, there's a little portion in the beginning of this scripture, this set of verses, that I think sometimes we overlook, but I think it's incredibly important to find Esther's source of strength and her control and her surrender to the one who is in control. It's right here, Esther 5 verses 1, and it just simply says, on the third day, Esther. And so what this means is the verses before this, some that we talked about last week, at the end after Esther has an interaction with Mordecai and she says this great line about if I perish, I'll perish. But then she tells him, but what I want you to do is I want you to gather all the people who, who will pray with you and who will fast. This is basically like one of those little Facebook notifications that says all my prayer warriors out there, this is what she did. She sent a little Facebook notification to all the people who would pray and fast. And then it says, and I will do the same. So on the third day, after Esther had been spending time praying and fasting, she had been spending time saying, God, this is a big thing that, I'm, that has been stirred in my heart, a big calling on my life, and I'm, I'm scared, but God, I trust that you are in control. 
You see, Esther took the time to go to God, to surrender to the one who has always been in control and say, you know what, God, this is what I'm supposed to do. And I know that you're good. And I know that you are in control. And if I'm honest, I think if we're really honest with ourselves and we ask ourselves, when's the last time that we did that? When's the last time that God moved us in a direction, that he stirred our heart, that he made us, gave us a burden for something that seemed important? And when was the last time we took it to him and said, you know what, God, I know you're in control. I know that you've put this in my path and I don't know why and I don't know what it's going to cost me, but I know that you're in control and I surrender to that control and I know that you're good and I'll do all the things that you have called me to do. This is what Esther did. This is when her selflessness became evident because she said it doesn't matter what it will cost me. I know that this is the right thing to do. Jesus did this too. Right before he was going to be crucified, Luke twenty-two forty-two, 42, it says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Selflessness is us giving up our own desires and control and giving God control, even if it's hard, even if it costs us something. Sometimes this looks like an honest conversation with someone that hurt you. Sometimes it's simply saying, I'm sorry. Sometimes it's quitting a job that takes you away from your family on all the nights and weekends and occupies your brain most of the time. Sometimes it looks like moving your family across the country or across the globe to do mission work. We don't know what the outcome looks like, but we can trust and surrender to the God who is in control and that the God who is good. But don't worry. There's another character we're going to look at in this story today, one who chose a path of selfishness. So we pick up in chapter 5, verse 9. It says this, Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself, we'll get back to that in a minute, and went home. He sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, and all the promotions with which the king had honored him. <clears throat> he had now advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. He was basically the most powerful person in the king of Persia, aside from the king himself. Moving on. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had, and he had the gallows made. So here's what we know. Selfish living puts you in control. Through all the things Haman did, we see selfishness is the common thread woven throughout this entire, the entire back half of this chapter. See, because of Haman's selfishness, we see a few things. First thing is Haman was absolutely oblivious to how God was using Esther. He had no clue of the feast that he was just invited to. That was part of God's doing. He was complete, completely oblivious of it. The second thing he did is when he left the feast and he was leaving the palace, he came to the gate where Mordecai was. 
Mordecai, by Persian law, was, had the option to bow to Haman. He chose not to. This made Haman absolutely furious. But Scripture tells us something very interesting about Haman, is that he actually restrained himself. He exerted a little bit of self-control. We talked about turning points earlier. This could be one of the biggest turning points in the entire book of Esther. Uh, a decision, a coin flip, uh, a fork in the road where Haman could have done something. He could have gotten rid of Mordecai right there, but for whatever reason, God used him in a unique way and allowed him to have a little, a little bit of self-control. This was a very, very unique thing for Haman because Haman was a selfish guy. He's all about thinking for himself. And lastly, the other thing is he, after this event, he went to his wife and his friends and, and recounted to him all of the things that he had accomplished. If given the choice between accomplishing those things and seeing Mordecai die, if given the choice, Haman would have preferred to have Mordecai put to death. Guy was evil. It reminds me of a very famous verse inside of the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 17, it says it this way. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Now, let's stop right there. There's so many times for us as believers, as Christians, as Jesus followers where we go, man, I wonder what God would have me do in this moment. So I love it when scripture responds to that thought with something so black and white and clear as day as that. Don't, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Okay, so this is how you get there. Here's what you do with it. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, it's interesting that Paul uses the word drunk here, because when we think drunk, we think of in a different state of mind, meaning we're surrendered to a different state of mind. So for us to be surrendered to Jesus, we're not surrendering to a state of mind, we're surrendering to a person, a who, not a what, right? So for us to be filled with the Spirit, it doesn't necessarily mean I am to be, I, I need to have a little bit of Jesus poured out in my life today, I need to have a little bit of Jesus poured out in my life tomorrow, and so on and so forth. No, it merely means for you and I to be surrendered to Jesus. Here's what that looks like for you and me. It means each day I wake up, I have to decide, is this going to be a day that TC is going to sit in the driver's seat? Or is this going to be a day that I'm going to surrender to God in all that I do and everything I, everything I say, all the people I come in contact with? Is it going to be a day that whenever I walk into my home, am I going to surrender to Jesus with the very words I use around my wife and kids? Is it going to be a day where I surrender to God? with my very time? Am I going to surrender to my time so much so that I'm going to make a, a conscious goal to wake up, I don't know, 10 minutes earlier just to spend time with God? We like to throw that, that uh, 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 excuse around all the time. I just don't have time. You make time for the things you want to do. Is, it, is that an area of your life that you can surrender to God to? What is that for you? What are those things in your life that as I'm saying those words, you're, you're probably remembering them going, you know what? Actually, I am aware of them. It's actually something I've been ignoring. So here we have two stories, two characters. Esther's life turned out very, very different than Haman's. Esther was granted what she, was, what she asked for and ends up liberating her people. Spoiler alert. Um, it's funny enough that we talk about Esther all the time in a positive sense, but I bet prior to this series, prior to this teaching, you have never heard the name Haman. In fact, in Jewish culture today, when the book of Esther is read aloud, when the very name of Haman is mentioned 
out loud. The people in the church take pots and pans, horns and trumpets, and they blow them, and they clanging them, clang them, making obnoxious noises on purpose in an effort to blot out his very name from history. See, Haman died on the gallows that he constructed. And I wonder if this is the oldest version of someone digging their own grave. Selfish living leads to emptiness while selfless living leads to fulfillment. It sounds uh, a little bit familiar. That's a conversation Jesus was having with his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, verse 25. And he says this, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, Oftentimes we have to find, our, find something that is greater than our own life to commit ourselves to, or we will, it, it will lead to our own demise. And sadly, sneakily, it will disguise itself as an empty life. You and I have to set aside the things that culture, Satan, our enemy is telling us, you have to do what's good for you. You have to do what's good for you and you only. Do think, through our mundane exhaustion, we are all about me, 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 or Haman's path. When is the last time you did something that, that was far greater than your own name? When is the last time you committed to something that, that challenged you, that put you in a position to where you, you had to rely on God, where you weren't in a position where you were trying to save your life, but rather lose it for Christ's sake? Maybe God has been speaking to you to, to get involved in your church family. Maybe it's in the context of, of serving a cup of coffee, holding a door, or maybe serving on a parking team. Maybe you went through the ringer as a teenager and you're trying to figure out what you are to do with the very pain that you went through. And I'm here to tell you one of the greatest ways you can serve the local church is to get involved with our student ministry, our kids ministry, and walk alongside people who are truly hurting, trying to figure out life just as you are. Things that seem like they're meaningless, meaningless and empty. But just as we talked about earlier, things are not always as they seem. You and I have the choice to put ourselves in control or to put God in control. The choice to make a selfish decision or a selfless decision. See, much like the game of chess, it isn't one in one swooping move, but rather in a game of strategy and small choices that build upon one another. You have to make the next right move. Esther did this and Haman did not. So what is it for you? Maybe you're at a turning point in your life and it's time for you to decide what is your next right move? Maybe for a while you've been pondering some of the things we've been talking about today. Maybe it's serving or maybe it's getting plugged into a small group and you know it's something that you have needed to do. We pray that today you take the opportunity to make your next right move. We believe that it will be the most worthy thing that you could do all year. Yeah, hey, maybe for you, uh, your marriage is actually on the rocks and you tuned into this as maybe a last ditch effort. Um, the selfish thing to do would be to actually throw in the towel and to say, you know what, I'm done. That is the easy option, but the selfless thing to do would be to simply invest time. Maybe use the words of the phrase, I'm sorry, to seek wise counsel, to seek restoration. It may be the most fulfilling thing you do. Maybe for you, it's generosity. Maybe for a while you've talked about starting to tithe or maybe to give to someone in need. But then you think about all the things that you need that money for, that you could do with that money, the things that would help you. I would encourage you today to make the next right move, to do the selfless thing. 
I bet you get more fulfillment out of that generous move than you have in a really long time. Maybe for you it's an addiction uh, and it's something you know you need to get rid of, but right now it's an outlet or an escape for you. And I don't know, it's, it's kind of easy to forget about the people that are near and dearest to you whenever it, it makes you feel good. Um, you, yes, you need to do the next right thing. Will it be hard? Yes. But will it be worth it? Absolutely. So what is it for you today? What is your next right move? Over the next few minutes, we encourage you to write it down somewhere. Spend some time praying over it. Remember the history that Esther affected, the journey, the lineage of Jesus was possible because of her obedience, because of her saying yes to the next right move. Imagine what a difference it would make in your life. Imagine the difference it would make in your family's life, the people you work with, the people that you go to school with. Imagine the impact that one move can have on your life and the lives of those around you.